Welcome to episode number 30 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Tonight, as always, we have a good lineup of things to be talking about. We're going to start off with a few changes to some AdWords. I think they're going to be including reviews in there. We're going to talk about how you can use those, activate those in your account, and some tips and tricks. We're also going to be talking about responsive emails. Yes, that's right. It's not just for your landing pages or websites. It's for emails now. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to end it off with testing without your IG department. How can we get around? The Diet Mountain Dew crowd. (laughs) I like Diet Mountain Dew. (laughs) All All right. right. So let's go ahead and get started. But before we do, as always. Get your little trick in there. What are you drinking? I'm doing a dark and stormy. That's our other go-to. I think the Moscow Mule is the primary one. Again, we will tweet this recipe out positively this time. (laughs) Check the Twitter feed. What are you doing tonight? I'm doing a an observance for probably some holy holiday I'm not familiar with. A Presbyterian <laughs> whiskey, a little bit of lemon juice, and some ginger beer. Goslings, to be specific. Always, every time. So let's go ahead and get started. Number one, AdWords review extensions. So if you're not familiar with extensions in general, they are features that you can add to your AdWords listings that you bid on. Typically, they revolve around location, site links. There's a few options in there. But recently, Google has announced that they are going to start allowing reviews in there as well. They take the place of site links and I believe locations as well, which we can get into a little bit later on. But Mm -hmm. Google is allowing you to use testimonials slash reviews now directly in your ads to essentially create some credibility with your offer and to show that Not only do you offer something that's relevant to someone's search query, but that there are other people that find it valuable or credible as well. And so the thinking there is that click-through rates might increase and just the believability your ad or offering might increase. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. I know you work in the PPCP space on a daily basis. So what do you think the impacts might be or some considerations that people might need to keep in mind? Yeah, so I think before we probably get into some of the details in terms of like where you can get reviews and how you're supposed to put them in there and how all that works, I think, you know, obviously reviews work. If you're not putting them on your landing pages, testimonials and reviews, super high impact stuff. So putting them obviously in your PPC ads is going to have a huge impact. As a quick aside, though, it does not take the place of good content, which if you want a good example of that, check out our latest tune-up, which is Infusionsoft. <laughs> they have a great product offering, but they might have jumped the gun and using a lot of, uh, and a lot of people do this. They think, we have a great testimonial. Let's use this instead of having actually good content describing our product. So if you're not using them in your landing pages, you should. Uh, and if not, if you don't have any, you should be looking for ways to get them. But... They're also not crutches for good content or, or ways to describe a good value proposition. Yeah, absolutely. That was a good... I mean, the beardmarketers.com slash tune-ups, for those of you who are not aware uh, of where you can find those. And, and there's a good video. We do talk about uh, testimonials for a good chunk of that video. So look look for that. Um, I've read a few... I haven't actually used extens- or review extensions yet myself. I have seen them pop up a little bit here and there. Mm -hmm. It seems like it was beta for a while, which is like how everything rolls out. I have read some experiences, 10 to 20% lifts is what I've seen in click-through rates for some people. Obviously, that's a huge deal when you're in a competitive industry. Sure. And practically means a reduction in how much you're paying per click if you can get your click-through rate up. 
in terms of what does reviews mean? So you can't just sort of go in there and make things up and, mm-hmm. and how there the, some guidelines. That right. You so how this sort of works. So obviously Google does have a guidelines page where you can read more about this. But in general, how it works is you do input your own review, right? So you do have to find that you write the text in there. It's almost like writing an, uh, an ad itself. So you write the text in there. You have to write the name of the source. And then you have to include a link to the page on that source where the quote is said, basically. Ah. And there are basically give them a citation. Right, right, right. Exactly. It almost is exactly a citation. So there are a few guidelines with that. Obviously, the review can't be on your own website, so you can't review yourself. The site that you're linking to, or the page that you're linking to, where you're sort of citing it, has to be primarily about your company. Uh It can't just be something that someone said as an off aside Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it has to have no clear, again, sort of connection with your company. you, sort of similar as you can't be the same domain name. So those are some of the catches. Can people actually go to said citation, or is that just for Google's backend purposes? Like, if they, when it renders out the review and the ad, if you were to click the company's name or something like that, does that take you to the page, or is it still the destination URL is to your target landing page? That's actually something I thought about a little bit when I was first reading about this and I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. So the way that they look when you look at them is it's obviously beneath your ad. There's the Mm -hmm. little quote that you put in character limits apply as usual with ads. And then the name of the source is there. And that is a, what looks to be a clickable link. I haven't actually clicked any that I've remembered seeing, but I assume that that actually might be a link over to the source Mm -hmm. of the quote um, instead of your landing page. So that could be an interesting little wonder how that works do you right. pay for that click exactly um you know and how does that convert for you sure um or of course we could be making this all up and it goes to your landing page <laughs> well and i'm also interested is there any point in the process where google reaches out to someone on that source to confirm or is it just all manual review so let's say for example i released a i work in a tech space and i cite an article from TechCrunch where they talk about my product very favorably does google at any point reach out to TechCrunch to actually mention or ask them if that's okay for us to publish or do they just look at our citation boom it's good enough it's public on the internet and that's fine for us we don't care about the permissions aspect if it's if it's public then it's free reign for us. I wonder if it does sort of follow the same rules as, say, Googlebot does. So if they have a no index, no archive on that page mm-hmm. in the meta tags, that they will not allow the publication of mm. that review in there. I'm sure there are probably some unique scenarios where that kind of stuff happens. Right. Um, and that is a good point. But it also follows a similar vein. I think this was last week where we talked about AdWords will be including recommendations and reviews from people. This is sort of like a little aside of that as well. I mean, PPC, especially AdWords, is turning into a very complex monster. Sure. Uh, you have to be paying attention every week to see the latest, greatest thing that's that's coming well, that, out. And you, I think it just lends itself to a lot of testing. You know, for some people, I think that site links can provide a good opportunity for your ads, but you might find for certain keywords that reviews might be. So I, I think what people are going to find, or at least hopefully have already discovered, is one shoe fits all doesn't really apply to AdWords. You know, for example, 
might be working in a space where one of our popular keywords is actually a review. So maybe it's top reviewed iPhone case or something like that. Well, in that instance, review extension might be the best fit, whereas for more of our general key terms, we might find that a site links extension works better for us because we can get them in a more relevant page. So I think that people are going to kind of find out as more and more of these features roll out, have to get a little bit more uh, strategic about how their campaigns are laid out and probably a little bit more thought put into their ads. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not sort of, I, I think paid search is turning into something that not just the marketing manager can do as well. Mm-hmm. It's you need someone who specializes in it because it used to just be, okay, how many keywords do we want to dump right, in there, right? And, and how many ads do we want to write, mm-hmm. right? Well, now it's like you were just sort of saying, I mean, how granular do you want to get with right. your extensions devices testing and, and targeting mm-hmm. and devices and, and, and all of that stuff? It can get really complicated really quick and you sort of run into diminishing returns. How deep sure. do you want to go? when it still makes monetary sense. Right. So for those that where it pertains, if you have some good press releases or some areas of reviews, give the new PPC extensions a try. It might be a game changer for some of your keywords. Like we already mentioned, though, it's probably not going to be applicable across your account. You're probably going to have to sit down and look at your keywords and see what might be a good fit and do some testing. The next thing that we wanted to talk about was a study that both of me and Rob actually found were quite interesting from the e-consultancy blog this week. And what they were laying out in this blog post, which I definitely recommend a read, is responsive email design and basically laying out five case studies on why you need to pay attention to this. So for those that aren't really familiar with responsive design, basically what it is 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 an effort to code and develop websites that instead of maintaining multiple experiences or platforms for different devices, some companies have totally different websites for their mobile phones, for their tablets, for their desktop users. Responsive design is a move to get away from that and have smart websites that are coded to understand how people are looking at their website with what device and actually serve them an experience that works well for that. So instead of having a mobile platform, a tablet website, and all these things that you need to juggle, make sure your SEO links are intact and this management nightmare, responsive design is a move away from that into having a smartly coded website that renders out an experience that works best for the device. Um, So if I'm accessing my site from an iPhone or an Android device or a computer, a desktop, a laptop, it doesn't matter. It's going to look consistent and well laid out for all those experiences without having to have these multiple websites. Yeah, I think a key there you sort of hinted at is that not necessarily that it looks the same across all Mm -hmm. those devices. In, in fact, it's mostly that it doesn't look the sure. same. It's that it functions correctly for that device, Correct. right? So mm-hmm. you can still read things on your iPhone, and it's not like in a super tiny font. Right, I have um, to like scroll right. the way over and, yeah. and read things where it's a little bit janky of an experience. So with that in mind, this study actually of these emails kind of lays out the case for we should not just think about responsive in just terms of our website, but also our email campaigns and how companies are seeing some great returns within this space because you have to consider especially in the mobile and the tablet space there is a great variety of devices out there and how do we deliver the best email experience through all those devices if someone's looking at my email from a four inch screen 
phone, well, that's vastly different to how I might develop and have an email render out if it's a 10-inch tablet or a laptop or a desktop uh, or all those devices. How do we more smartly present a eye-catching and attention-grabbing experience through email, especially when a lot of people's attention and time is on a limit, especially when we're dealing with email. All the people that sign up for email lists and all the companies now that once you buy a product for them, you're automatically enrolled in these lists, we're inundated with emails all day long. That's not even including work and and personal emails. So a lot of times when we're dealing with the inbox, we're dealing with things that are going to be grabbing for attention that are in the weights or other things that I want to do while I'm on the computer. So having a eye-catching and again, an attention-grabbing email is gets even more important as time goes on. So how do we design for that? So this study in the blog post was conducted through one of their partners, the email marketing census. They talked about that when we look at companies and how they develop emails, a vast majority of it, over 60, actually close to over 70% of companies look at the development of their emails as either basic or non-existent, meaning they think about the creative aspect of their email a lot. How does this potentially look? But when they think about the development of said emails and how they actually render out in these experiences, they don't really pay too much attention to it. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking for that competitive edge or how you can create emails that get people talking about or are excited to click. These are the things that you need to to be considered. So a couple examples, career builder for, I think most people are familiar with them. They're a job and resume hosting site where you can go look for new career opportunities. They saw a click-through rate increase of up to 20% depending on what email said that they were doing. And not only that, they increased open rates subsequent 15 to 17%. So not only were they getting more people to click through with the layout of said emails, but once they started exposing people to these emails, they were continually more readily opening their emails posts. Gotcha. So, so the kind of, engagement rate went right, up a lot. Gotcha. Exactly. You know, so it seemed that the emails were doing a better job of making a lasting impression. Another company that was testing along those lines was a company called Weird Fish, which I will admit I have never been to. But they had done a case study that was a bit slim on the details, but they increased click-through rate 10% on their email templates. Interestingly enough, Crocs, which I would recommend a lot of people not buy Crocs because they're embarrassing, but... But the case study that they lay out here is quite interesting because they were very uh, forthcoming with the test details of what they were actually uh, they actually did with responsive design. And interestingly enough, that the clicks and opens were largely consistent. So they tested not only a static version, but they also tested a static mobile version, which was optimized for most mobile screens. And they also did a responsive design as well. So what was interesting, though, is while clicks and opens for them were pretty consistent through all three versions, so the desktop, the mobile, and then the responsive, the total revenue were highest in all cases with responsive, and then it followed with desktop and mobile, and then also responsive achieved the highest AOV per order for them as well, for their embarrassing shoes. (laughs) So what's interesting is not always for retailers was there a clear 
responsive was always better in getting clicks. And a part of that, I think, is probably strength of brand and how good your email lists are, how good at you are scrubbing with your customers and things like that. But what was interesting is once people actually started interacting with these emails, responsive for many of the people that were outlined in this survey or this case study did quite well, not just in doing a conversion, like placing an order, but also how much they were spending. So it's almost like we're kind of setting a precedent with that initial experience of an email that lasts all the way throughout the visit, which might be influenced with how good their web process is at following up on that uh, once they get onto the site as well. I think a lot of this, and I was reading some studies earlier this week that I was thinking about talking about on the podcast about Gmail's primary inbox now. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of people are are really starting to find that engagement rates are a key indicator, not just simply getting people to, you know, mark your emails as, as they should show up in the primary box, but just the fact that they do open them in the promotions box and interact with them on a regular basis, they start showing up in primary. Because mm-hmm. they deem it as important. Right. So those responsive lists that you're talking about, 10, 20%, while those are impressive in and of themselves, the fact that you're increasing engagement could also lead to, and I mean, I don't want to necessarily speak out of turn, this may not be gospel yet, but uh, it could lead to, you know, actually getting those emails to show up in the primary box, which is a huge thing for all Gmail sure. users, obviously. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing, though, I wanted to sort of talk about with responsive is that, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, there are three major methods uh, to send an email. One is just simply, I'm not going to worry about making sure it looks good on everything. Like it sort of looks good enough. I'm using a template and MailChimp or whatever it mm-hmm. is, and I'm just going to fire it out there. That's one way to look at it. The second way is sort of let's use some media queries on our CSS style sheets and try to change things on a phone or on the mail app for MacBooks and things like that. It gets awfully tricky, though, pretty quickly. And it really reminds me of maybe five, six, seven years ago when developers had to design for IE6 and 7 Mm -hmm. and everything else and websites didn't look the same across Mm -hmm. everything. It's sort of where we are now with email. Emails don't look the same across every browser. And then there's obviously the third option is let's build a responsive design. And I think that right now, clearly, hands down, responsive is the best way to go, especially when you consider, I think I read a stat this week, 66% of emails are opened on a mobile device. Right. If you're just rolling with standard default templates or aren't good at those media queries to change the way your emails look, I mean, your emails are unreadable on a mobile device. Yeah, just content boxes out of whack and just... I'm not going to rendering terribly. Right. I'm not going to pension zoom to read your email. Uh, right. You know, I should be able to sort of read it and scroll past it and get the gist of what it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it might just not be just, okay, make sure everything's big enough to read on a phone that, I mean, it might just be that, Hey, maybe you don't need that much in your email. If someone's mm-hmm. reading it on a phone, you just right. need the headline repeated again, sort of <laughs> in the thing like sale 25% off click here with okay, a background yes. image, you know, maybe that's what works best for mobile phone users. And then using the responsive design to sort of fold out a more in-depth, de- detailed email for people who are on a desktop mm-hmm. or on a, on a laptop. Those are the kinds of things that are starting to take off on landing pages and websites with responsive designs. And are you know, people are starting to hint at now, hey, let's look at our emails. Let's do these same sort of responsive techniques and apply them to our emails. Yeah. And I want to emphasize, you know, for a lot of people that really are breaking into this space or not really sure a lot of these technologies 
or methods are quite easy to obtain. You can just do a Google search for responsive design, grab some templates, or if you want to pay for some premium ones, I know there's sites out there like Code Canyon or whatnot where you can snag a $10 template that will give you a good starting base or that you can hand off to a developer uh, to kind of arrive at what you want. But clearly there is metrics and data behind that it is the way of the future, at least for now, as devices stand. So we're going to tweet out the link for the blog post kind of laying out the case studies. But I definitely recommend if you're a marketing manager out there, if you manage email lists, Give it a look-see. There's some interesting data out there and a lot of conclusions that you can take, and you might want to just revamp your strategy and how you market differently to different devices, as Rob was given some good examples, too, uh, and this might be a good technology vehicle for you to be able to do that. So, all right, on to the last topic. So Rob has had some good interactions with some <laughs> capable IT teams this week, me as well, on a daily basis. Right. And wanted to, you know, for anyone that's really been in this space for a long time, many times you and IT can get into some ugly wrestling matches. It's Absolutely. always the bane of a lot of marketing managers or online marketers. Uh, it's just a limitation of, of IT. And, you know, you have all these ideas, but IT is always a holdup. And yeah. so one of the, I think, most contentious places where this arises is obviously testing because it's kind of the crossroads of marketing and technology. So we wanted to talk about the experiences that we have had and kind of share some tips that we have on how can you maybe sidestep the roadblocks that you might commonly incur when you're dealing with IT and wanting to test some of your ideas or at least kind of embark on some new areas where you think that IT might be the holdup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many. I mean, we probably talk about this for an hour or so. But, uh, you know, just silently for, crying to myself <laughs> right now. So for those listeners who maybe aren't very familiar with who we are and what we do on a daily basis. So we work with a lot of clients, a lot of companies in our day to day jobs, helping them set up testing environments and perform tests on landing pages, purchase paths, websites in general all those sorts of things. So very experienced with trying to work around IT teams because they end up, like you sort of said, being the, um, no, we can't do that, guys, mm -hmm. right? We can't do it like Impossible. that. Right? Impossible. Yeah. You don't understand kind of stuff. You know, they right. always try to drop those things and they oftentimes work against marketing managers because they don't, not necessarily that they just don't know anything. It's mm -hmm. just they don't have the technical experience to say no because of this, right? Right, exactly. They know they could probably do it, but they don't know why and mm -hmm. how to how to say that. So, it's like, no, this seems feasible. Why can't we do this? Right. And you just don't know how to fully connect the X's. Exactly. So, like you said, this past week we've been working with a new client of ours trying to sort of set up a testing environment and make sure all of that stuff works. And I don't mean to sort of badmouth developers in general, um, it's just sort of a complicated situation that sure. we run into all the time. And so there definitely are a few scenarios and strategies that we use to get around them and the easiest ways possible. Some of them are just using tools, right? Mm -hmm. So it's called Google Content Experiments Now. Obviously, it's an easy, free way to set up tests. There's some technical limitations there because you do have to actually design another test, but you don't have to rely on a heavy installation of a massive piece of software. It's just throwing some tags on a page. So yeah, I mean, to kind of back up for a second, I mean, I would classify testing, you know, we get a lot of questions from people talking about what is testing? I really want to get into that. I have a lot of ideas. What tools were you, would you recommend? And there's kind of a breakdown of different tools. So there's, there's some that are just more simple, split testing environments. So right. things like content experiments where 
you basically have two pages of your website. You tell Google, I'm interested in serving up both of these pages to different users and I want to see which one works best. Okay, there's a couple tools out there that do that. So that's the simple splitters. We also have tools that you insert JavaScript on pages and those allow you to do splitting like the Google tool, the content experiments, but also some of them allow for some more complex testing. So these are more your like Maximizer and Optimizely and Visual Website Optimizer where they start getting into multivariate testing. So maybe we have a cart page and we wanna swap out how we're doing our checkout button, but also our pricing column and product images or something like that. Then we also have some tools that go a little bit beyond that you really have to integrate with your IT team, things like test and target or site spec, where you are making some serious coding changes to your website to allow for targeting or actually putting physical servers in place. So how do we test or get around IT without necessarily having to engage them. So content experiments is a great... I think to further muddy the waters Mm -hmm. is that content experiments has released an API that sort of breaks it out of that shell it used to be into with limited features and now does all of those things you just described in every way you could possibly want. Mm -hmm. Um, But So the other ones you, you mentioned, like, for example, Optimizely and Visual Website Optimizer, I mean, those are great for the teams out there who just want to what you see is what you get sort of editor, right? right? So if you want to change a web page and you're not very familiar with website coding, HTML and CSS and things like that. Just click that paragraph and I'm going to change the text. All you need is your dev team to sort of install this on a page once and then you can make changes just like you would be editing a Word document or a PowerPoint yourself. It's very easy to do. The prices for those I think are fairly low. Visual website optimizers are I think really low. They are. Uh, A lot of it boils down how many features you want, whether that's support or the in-depth level of testing that you want to do and how many people are going to be exposed, how big your site is. But you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of those tools allow you to test even if you don't have any coding experience. You might need your IT team to include a JavaScript file on your site, which depending on your team might take a while. But once it's kind of set up, then you're good to go and you can kind of skirt around IT Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the key takeaways. All of these sort of take some setup. But mm-hmm. once you get them there, it's, you don't have to rely on that IT to run as many tests as you, I mean, conceivably would want to run. So if you have questions, comments, complaints about testing with IT, hit us up 904-270-9603. Share your war stories with us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like I said, this is what we do every day. So we've been there, done that. We could probably help you out with uh, mm-hmm. any problems you may be having. Right. Um, you know, we've come up with a ton of different workarounds. It's like basically going down a checklist every mm-hmm. time we work with a new client so we've been there done that and i think i don't know do you have anything else to add i think we're actually wrapping this one up. yeah i think that's a good wrap up but i think that testing tools can allow you to uh definitely skirt around where you might have some struggles with your it team to get things done and empower you to be a little bit more agile so i suggest i know it, it seems intimidating to a lot of people but take the time research out some tools see what might be a good fit for you and i think you might be surprised on the benefits that you might gain from it All right, so that's been episode number 30 of the Bearded Marketers. Give us a call again, as Rob said, 904-270-9603. Let us know something that you've been struggling with, bosses yelling at you, or you don't even know where to start. Between the both of us, we have a lot of experience in the industry and can probably help point you in the right direction or give you some just direct advice on how we solve that issue. But again, this has been Corey and Rob. We are the Bearded Marketers, and we will see you next week.